Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Nice to see you guys. Yeah, nice to see everyone's virtual faces, as always. Um, Yesterday, when we were... We had the production meeting. Uh, Bill, you mentioned to us that you were going to go foraging. You were on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and had to make your way back to the wilds of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Did you did you walk today? Is that is is that what's going on? I did walk. I've logged about ten miles. Uh, walked from from Manhattan to to Kings County, across the Manhattan. Did you Bridge. feel like? Um, did it feel like Omega Man out there? What's it like? <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's definitely a lot of. A lot of people sort of eyeing each other up, and you gotta, you gotta, you walk in the bike lanes a lot. Um, yeah, uh, th- they were doing construction on the bridge, and there were a lot of sort of surly construction workers, and they were like, "What are you doing? Hold on, okay, all right, come on, come on, come on." Uh, so just really, just New York's social distancing at its best. Um, but I made it. I'm here. Got a lot of steps in today. Um, That's good. It's better than the normal quarantine situation, which is like you walk 15 steps all day. Uh huh. Like, couch wow. to fridge yeah. to bedroom. Yeah. That's pretty much Been it. Been a long day on the couch. Better retire to the kitchen. Yes. <laughs> uh, Amber, also, I wanted to uh, credit you for going Omega Man and not the much easier I Am Legend uh, rep. Oh, thank so you. Thank, thank you. you. I went classic. Good. Sure. That's good. Sure. Well, we're very happy you made it back in one piece, um, but we've got a show to tend to, and uh, what uh, what exactly are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, so I just want to let our listeners know we're going to do another all-host show today, and um, for the first time in a while, we've got some non-coronavirus news to kick off with. And That then can't a little- be right. I didn't I know, know right? there was such a shocking. thing as non-corona um, news. Yeah, anymore. and then yes. a little later in the show, Bill's going to give us a nice historical look at um, how the law changed after um, previous pandemics, which is just an interesting thing to be talking about in this moment. Noted American history major, Bill Donahue, <laughs> here, really pu- <laughs> finally yes. putting it to use. <laughs> We're all leaning into our strengths in these dark times. So um, yes. to that end, you guys know I love talking about the high court. So that's what yep. I want to get to like right off the bat in the show. Um, the Supreme Court's been pretty active despite the circumstances. They actually released six decisions this week. Um, the one I want to talk about is criminal law related, which is something we don't always cover on Pro Se. But yeah. it's worth really getting into this one here because it's not so much about the criminal law that I want to focus. It's about this brewing war on one of the hot topics at the court, stare decisis. Yeah, I mean, this this happens a lot um, where, I mean, it, it happened, it, it's happened throughout the history of the court, but um, especially in recent years, the court is often confronted with um, precedents that it has put on the books that many people fe- feel were e- either wrong at the time or perhaps have been outgrown due to technology or the the arc of history or things like that. Um, but let's talk about this case first, and then we can talk about some of the some of the broader implications. Yeah, let me just give you sort of the back of the envelope of what this case is about. Then we'll get into the starry decisis yeah. part. So this one's called Ramos versus Louisiana. It's um, a decision where the court said the Sixth Amendment's requirement for unanimous jury verdicts for convictions of serious crimes applies to states also. They overruled a precedent in this case that had allowed um, two states, Louisiana and Oregon, to continue convicting people without the vote of every single juror. Um, 
this one was really messy. I'm going to say that right up top. Yeah. Had, it was a splintered vote, lots of um, concurrences and dissents, and we'll get into a couple of those. Um, but ultimately, the, the court sided with a man who had been convicted of murder in t- 2016 in Louisiana by a state court there from 10 out of 12 jurors. And, and the court said the Sixth Amendment's uni- unanimous jury requirement is incorporated by the states by the 14th Amendment. This is important because that's the opposite of what the court had said in another similar case in 1972. So uh, we had, Alex, both of you had mentioned stare decisis here, and and it's such an interesting question because, uh, you know, these longstanding, uh, really sort of controversial uh, questions that that are sort of sitting out there and, and waiting to be heard in the years ahead Many of them will turn on the extent to which the court is is sort of deferential yeah. to its own opinion. So let's get into stare decisis <clears throat> and um, you know what what why that's uh, a, a big part of this ruling. Yeah, I think it's important to just sort of contextualize the backdrop here, where the courts just become more and more polarized in recent years into liberal and conservative wings of the court. So we've seen a lot of five four splits yeah. where the four liberals have accused the five conservatives of overturning past precedents, not because of some, you know, learned scholarly approach, but simply because they had the majority to do it. Yeah. Um, so this case, in its own way, was a bit of a curveball to talk about this because it wasn't one of those five fours. This ruling was 6-3. Um, this time it had three liberals and three conservatives form a majority to overrule a precedent. And the remaining two conservatives... And one liberal, it was Kagan, was the one liberal in that group, stuck with stare decisis and wanted to uphold the prior precedent. So it's a weird grouping here. Um, But a lot of them explicitly weighed in on -hmm. what they think of the principle itself. So that's kind of the meat of what we're getting to here. Yeah, you you referenced already that it was kind of like there wasn't like neat lines of coalition building or whatever. And I love, I love when opinions like that come down and someone, some Supreme court reporter always screen grabs the summary of who said what. And this one is like a long block of text about who, who was with who. Uh, Yeah. It's a wild one. But yeah, like you say, because of the, of the importance of, of turning over a, you know, a relatively recent precedent, they all kind of took a bite at the apple of saying like what they feel about the issue of precedent. What exactly did they say? Yeah, I want to go through a few of them one by one to sort of lay out sort of the battle lines here because I yeah. think it's informative for what what camps we could see in future decisions. Yeah. So Alito more or less called the liberals hypocrites. Um, in his dissent, he said, the doctrine of stare decisis gets rough treatment in today's decision. And this is piggybacking on oral arguments for the same case where he specifically pointed out that liberals who had wanted to overturn this precedent, it's called Apodaca, had, quote, lectured pretty sternly in a couple of dissents about the importance of stare decisis. So he's mincing no words there. He's like, you guys can't have it both ways. Either you love stare decisis or you don't. Yeah, I mean, they they, they all go around all the time with sort of various... I mean, depending on the issue before them about the, the the relative strength or weakness of precedent and its importance. But what did what did what did some of the what did some of the other people say? Yeah. So the counterpoint to Alito was really Sotomayor. She explained why she was in that majority grouping that did overturn uh, a precedent here. She wrote a concurrence and she said it was important because of this. Her quote is. This is not a case where we cast aside precedent simply because a majority of this court now disagrees with it. She said instead that the the prior precedent was, quote, 
on shaky ground from the start. It's so, so interesting, right? So she's saying right? there's more to it than just like, oh, we we just don't like a thing. This the, like the, the, this question is so inherently sort of subjective, though, right? The the idea of what is what was on shaky ground from the beginning, what what represents a shift in how the the court is analyzing it. It's 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 no surprise that people that this has become such a contentious thing because you know everyone can sort of shape it to the argument that they're trying to make. You're right. And and this had some other wrinkles, two more justices I want to talk about that sort of play into that. Is there a way to be more clear about how to do this and where we all stand? Yeah. So so Kagan was actually the one liberal that dissented with two conservatives and said we should have upheld prior precedent. A lot of court watchers have read into that a bit and thought about, well, why would Kagan do that? You'd, you'd normally think she'd side with her liberal colleagues. Um, but she just really believes in stare decisis. She wants it to be something that is adhered to almost always with very little exception. So I think she was really staking her ground on how important she thinks that principle is. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the flip side, you had um, Justice Kavanaugh. And I actually think his contribution to this sort of messy set of dissents and, and concurrences was maybe the most interesting of all. Yeah, he kind of came out as like having the having a, like one of the more authoritative takes just in this kind of like a like a hodgepodge he did of opinion. Because he got to what I think we're all circling around, which was offering thoughts on how do you simplify the court's approach or put it into some sort of standard set of things that they look at for when they should overturn precedent. So he wrote a whole concurrence where he called the current situation a real muddle. He said that um, stare decisis is posing a problem for the rule of law and for this court. And so what he ended up doing, he sort of bemoaned this lack of a roadmap. And so he did what justices do. He wrote one. Um, He offered (laughs) up the idea that, all right, well, if we're going to have to keep confronting this, and we're we're obviously going to have to repeatedly with things like abortion, a lot of... um, uh, discrimination-related things that could potentially upset some precedent that are on the docket. So he said there should be a more neutral way to assess this than just what are your political leanings at the time. And he said there should be three steps. So I'm just going to hit you with Kavanaugh's idea of what this should be. I, b- b- His, b- before you get yeah. into this, I like the idea of Kavanaugh sitting there and being like, like trying to pitch like a three-step precedent analysis that he sells on like late night TV or something. It's like, have <laughs> I, I mean, got a test yeah. for precedent for you? Three easy steps. Let's hear about them, Amber. Step one, the court should ask whether the prior decision was not just wrong, but egregiously wrong. That would be the sure. part where the audience would say, not just wrong, but egregiously wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like okay. graphics. Okay. It's step, step Egregiously two. wrong. Okay. Assess whether the precedent has caused, quote, significant negative jurisprudential or real world consequences. So less catchy, but okay. Uh, uh, Yeah. Negative consequences. Yeah. Real world negative consequences. Yes. And step three, examine the reliance interests of the parties before you overturn it. So Mm. was it egregiously wrong? Are there significant real world consequences? And if you overturn this, are you messing up what a lot of people were doing as their practice and relying on? It's very interesting. I mean, again, it I, I don't know how much it moves the ball forward in terms of everyone believing that the other side is operating in good faith toward this principle where, you know, something that is was egregiously wrong. I'm not sure that that changes the, the calculus. It, it'll be interesting to see whether or not this kind of framework uh, gains traction or, or, you know, people write about yeah. it or whatever. 
I mean, I think that's exactly right, Bill. Kavanaugh does his best to offer what he thinks would be a clear way to analyze all of this. But for any lawyer or law student listening right now and thinking about those three steps, immediately your mind goes to, well, what does egregious mean in this context? What is a real world consequence? All of that is very squishy. So even if we took this as the new standard, I think we'd have a lot of litigation in our future. Uh, Another story we wanted to talk about this week, we've got another exciting foray into the legal wilderness uh, for the marijuana industry. Um, There was a company called uh, uh, United Cannabis Corp that filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Um, And the uh, cannabis industry's relationship with bankruptcy is, uh, this is going to shock you as comes up every time we talk about marijuana, in something of a legal gray area. Um, and Diana Novak-Jones, um, uh, who we've had on the show a bunch of times before, and of course was the the star of Legalization, a Law 360 spe- special podcast um, about uh, the marijuana industry. She wrote this story that basically said that a lot of attorneys are going to be watching this bankruptcy proceeding um, to sort of gain um, a little more insight as to how the industry is navigating bankruptcy proceedings. I would be remiss if we didn't mention, we would be remiss if we did not mention that this petition (laughs) was in fact filed on Monday, April 20th. That's true. Thank you uh, for pointing that out. I wouldn't, I, this is a very interesting sort of technical legal issue, but we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. Uh, filed filed on 420. Uh, I, I wasn't able to confirm this. I heard they did it at 6.09 in the morning on 420. I don't know if that's if that's certain. <laughs> um, one last one. Consider this. Dankruptcy. It's good. I You heard it here first. Okay. Everybody. Great. Uh, Steve, no no need for the air horn drops. That's, that's, that's not necessary. Okay. Uh, anyway, so yes, like I said, uh, this company, uh, United Cannabis Corp, filed for bankruptcy protection in Colorado on Monday, 420. Um, basically, what you need to know is that bankruptcy protection has mostly been unavailable to the weed industry because, as most people probably know by now, the drug remains illegal at the federal level even as states have loosened their own restrictions and if some cases fully legalized it or do it for medical purposes and things like that. Um, but United is, is in a little bit of a different position. According to the documents that they filed um, as part of their bankruptcy proceeding, they, um, the majority of their business is derived from the manufacture and sale of CBD and hemp products, all of which are perfectly legal at the federal level, and the company therefore feels that they should be able to fully avail themselves of the nation's bankruptcy laws Mm -hmm. and get bankruptcy protection, same as anybody else. But there's a wrinkle here. The company also holds a patent for uh, various compounds that contain THC um, that it licenses to both medical and recreational marijuana distributors, which sort of nudges it back into this gray area. It is it, it, it licenses this patent to companies that sell marijuana straight up, not just CBD and hemp. Um, so it's trying to say, listen, most of all the business we do is just this CBD stuff. We should be able to you know, use the bankruptcy laws if we enter financial distress and not be hamstrung by the fact that we license this one patent. Uh, I can see how this is going to get really complicated. I yeah. know in a bunch of other areas of the law, cannabis companies have made similar arguments about things like taxes, where they're like, no, a bunch of our stuff's legal. We should get a bunch of tax write-offs. But then there's wrinkles when you also have the THC product. Mm-hmm. So how's that going to play out here, do we think? Yeah. Um, and the 
the the documents that the company filed um, are are instructive here because um, according to this they um, they raked in about thirteen million dollars in revenue through through the third quarter of last year uh, from the sale of their CBD and hemp products. So again, the like the 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 fully legal stuff. Um, but the documents also showed that they got just about $68,000 from what they called licensing and consulting. This, this ostensibly loops in the revenue generated by its patent, right? That it, that it, that it licenses out to, uh, marijuana, the people who sell marijuana. Um, so there's, so there's no question that it's a small portion of the business. That's $68,000 on licensing versus 13 million for, um, CBD and hemp. Um, and the question now is just like about how tethered can you be to the federally illegal stuff and still secure bankruptcy protection? Um, the U.S. trustee program, which administers, um, which, which, which carries out bankruptcy proceedings on the federal side, um, has operated basically under a directive to move to dismiss all marijuana-related bankruptcy petitions, regardless of whether they, they were filed in states that have legalized the product like Colorado has. Um, this was just on Monday, and there has been no government motion to dismiss yet. However, um, there may already be some headwind for the company. The judge that is overseeing the case um, issued a short order just yesterday, um, days after the filing, basically referencing this standing rule that um, all marijuana-related uh, bankruptcy petitions have to be tossed out, or at least, you know, they have been tossed out. Um, and the judge said, quote, that United um, appears to be engaged in the marijuana industry, and it ordered the company, it ordered United to make a, to file, basically show cause as to why it should not be dismissed. So it's, he, the, the, the judge is proceeding from that basis of saying, like, from my look at it, you appear to be in the marijuana industry. You should show us why that we should not toss the case, to- toss your petition out right here and now. Beyond the That's obvious, gonna be really interesting, yeah. Uh, because it, I mean, if any little tiny bit of dealing with um, state legal but federally illegal marijuana means that you can't get the protections of things like bankruptcy, it might give some players like this one second thoughts if the bulk of their business is CBD. Yeah, I mean. You know, this as I said, this company is maybe uniquely suited. I don't I don't happen to know offhand how many companies sort of have this this interesting situation where they sell fully federally legal stuff with like a strand of its business in in, you know, full sale of recreational weed. Um, but in any case, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see on how sort of widely applicable it is. But it's important to also note um, this isn't the first time that this company United has sort of, uh, you know, explored new legal paths in in the cannabis industry. Um, The patent that it actually owns and licenses has been subject to the nation's first federal infringement case involving cannabis over the last two years. They filed it two years ago against this company called Pure Hemp Collective. It's not worth getting into like exactly what the patent is and all this stuff. It's down that 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 case has been whittled down to about four grand worth of royalties at stake, but they've kept litigating it because it's important on the sort of the the reach and applicability of cannabis patents and things like that. Um, that case is now on hold because uh, United has now um, filed for bankruptcy. Um, and this is just going to be, like we say, another test of this quasi-legal area in which cannabis uh, uh, cannabis companies operate.
So as we hinted at the top of the show, we're going to have a little history lesson as our main segment today, talking about uh, an interesting historical analog for our current times, which, you know, everyone keeps talking about it being unprecedented and historical, but there is an interesting precedent in the form of the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, which killed millions of people around the globe and saw pretty similar shutdowns in the United States uh, in 1918 and 1919. Um, uh, there, there's not actually as much uh, case law, like l- legal opinions that came out of this, or or perhaps, um, uh, you know, there's just not as many floating around super well-preserved as, as we would hope for um, from a, a century on. But um, there's some interesting cases uh, that, that deal sort of directly with, with that. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting to look at how courts digested this. I don't want to make sweeping claims about, you know, that this offers insight into how courts might rule this time around. Things have changed a lot in 100 years. But, um, but it's definitely interesting just from a sort of historical document uh, perspective to look back at how courts did this. And we should say um, at the up top, um, a few of these were compiled and sort of the general idea of it were compiled by two attorneys, April Farris and Heaven Chi over at the law firm of Yetter Coleman. Um, they put together a few of these cases. Um, uh, so we just want to give them a shout out before we get into it. Uh, just and again, just before we get started, I just wanted to know if the final will be multiple choice or essay questions, because this is we're going to go over a lot of stuff here. Uh, the, the, so for you, I, well, you, you haven't attended <laughs> for me. the class, you haven't attended class for most of the semester. Um, yeah, that's tough. So you'll be lucky to get away with pass fail, Alex. Right, I let's thought you would drop the class. I don't, uh, I withdraw. Let's get to the, let's get to the lecture. So there is one weird thing. There's a bunch of, a bunch of cases. Well, I guess not weird, but I get there. There were a bunch of cases about, um, school closings, uh, in various courts okay. around the country. Um, one particularly interesting one, it was, uh, filed by an Illinois school teacher named Gladys Phelps. Um, very school teachery, uh, I, in, in 1919 <laughs> kind of name. I was going to say, yeah. this is, this is really hitting the, hitting the hot spot of the, of, of the segment right now. <laughs> so she sued her Illinois school district after they refused to pay her for the time when the school was shut down. Um, it was a whopping $100 for two months of salary. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. Tough times for Gladys. Uh, yeah. So eventually, the the Illinois Supreme Court ruled in 1922 that an epidemic like the flu the flu in 1918 um, was not an act of God that would have allowed the school district to avoid paying the teachers. They said that teachers who were ready and willing and able to teach had still, you know, that that it wasn't the kind of situation where where the school district can just fully back out of out of paying them. Um, there's also a bunch of business cases that 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 go, you know, sort of about various ways that that businesses were affected by by the pandemic in uh, in 1918. Um, in in 1920, the the South Carolina Supreme Court ruled on a case against um, Western Union that that was trying to hold the company liable for a delayed telegram that caused the plaintiff to lose sales. <laughs> sort of. Uh, you know, I love similar- how like specifically dated these are. Yeah. Be- between the names and the teacher salaries and the method of communication. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, as we're as we're zooming uh, currently. Correct. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, so th- the court ruled against Western Union. They they said that Western Union had defended themselves, saying um, that they shouldn't be held liable for um, a delay that was quote 
due solely to the prevalence of an epidemic of influenza, which is was an act of God. Um, the court rejected that and and held the company liable. Um, I think what I love about the ones you've mentioned so far, Bill, is that it it doesn't sound that dissimilar from some of the cases we've been running down in our in the the Law Three Sixty Stories we're writing. Force Majeure has been all over yeah, our yeah. stories, and like it's just a lot the of this extent really to which the, this is similar. that. Yeah. Yep. Um, there was another interesting case in a Kentucky appeals court in 1921. A construction company had. Um, claimed it was entitled to uh, a larger payment after it had completed a job. The argument was essentially that the epidemic had made labor um, far less available than in, in normal times. So the the um, the task was more expensive and, and more difficult to complete. Um, but the court ultimately uh, uh, rejected that, saying it was not an excuse to demand more money um, for for the job that that you had already agreed to. Um, a year later, there was another case in the same court, actually uh, uh, filed against a drug maker. Um, they were ultimately held liable for accidentally substituting a patient's prescription for another medication that ended up hurting that patient. Um, the company, again, they argued that they sort of used the epidemic as a reason for why this had happened. They said the, the, the mistake was um, due to short staffing caused by by the flu outbreak. Um, but again, the court rejected it, saying that, you know, that that, yes, you were short staffed and yes, it was because of this. But that is not enough to get you out of behaving the way that you contracted that you would. It's pretty interesting. I mean, like like you said, we this is just a, this is a handful of cases that that have you know, like you say, survived you know the 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 test of time. But and 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 we wouldn't want to read too much into them as far as what's going to happen with regard to Corona litigation. But it's interesting to note that I mean, in in all the ones we've mentioned, like it, you you weren't given a lot of leeway be, because of this outbreak. Yeah, and it's um, I think as you said, it'll be fascinating to see the extent to which the court views this as you know an end times kind of thing where it truly is different than other situations or, you know, something where, where it, it, it comes up. It's a, it's a thing you have to deal with, but it's not really sort of, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't allow for completely different circumstances. Um, our final thing, I, I sort of saved our, our best and our biggest story for our, for, for the end here. Um, because it's 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 an interesting story and it's a story that continues to sort of it has it the legacy of this of this story has carried through all the way to to the present day um so in in 1919 right in the very middle of the pandemic there were um a very grisly story came out in Washington DC three foreign diplomats from China um, were murdered at uh, an educational mission in in the city of DC um so the police, immediately started searching for a suspect and they eventually zeroed in on um, a young Chinese man named uh, Xian Sung Wan. Um, He was a student who had been at the scene of the crime on the the day of these murders. Um, Wan was very ill because he had contracted the Spanish flu and was continuing to suffer from the after effects of this. Apparently when the police found him, um, he was in bed and was already very, very sick. Um, but the police interrogated him nonstop uh, for a week straight, day and night, all without formally arresting him. Uh, so they, they sort of kept him in this hotel room, sequestered, um, but they had never actually put him under arrest. Um, after eight days of this, he was desperately sick and in severe pain, um, but they 
packed him up and put him brought him back to the the scene of the crime and they walked him around for this is from the opinion 10 hours in the uh oh. the the place where it had happened all very sick um and so finally after 12 days this guy Juan uh finally c- confessed to the crime and and admitted that he had done what the police were saying he signed a a, a stenographer's thing of their interview and blah 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 um, I would listen to this story as a true crime podcast. So yeah, it's keep good, that in right? mind this, I mean, this kind of owns as far as a narrative goes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, um, so one, uh, uh, later at his trial, he, he recanted his confession and, and said basically what all of our listeners are immediately thinking, which was, he was coerced into, into saying this, that he was in this horrible pain and he just, you know, he signed this confession to make the pain go away. He was essentially being tortured. Um, yeah, you torture but, a guy long enough, he'll tell you he's the king of France if he just if he if if it means you'll stop. But yeah, exactly. So uh, a, a judge, but but a, but under the the precedent at the time, a judge ruled sure. that it was admissible in his trial. Um, everyone knows where this story is going. He was eventually convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to death uh, by hanging. If we want another uh, uh, marker of <laughs> of what period of history we're in, yeah. Um, so in, in 1924, uh, this was a few years after the trial, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the conviction. Um, they ruled that Juan's confession was involuntary and inadmissible. Uh, up to that point, courts, the precedent had been, the precedent that I was referring to before had been that, um, quote, threats or, quote, promises by police made um, a confession inadmissible. Mm. But um, Justice Louis Brandeis, who, who wrote the opinion here, very famous Supreme Court justice, said that the Constitution's protections were broader than that. The key sort of quote from the ruling, which I thought was very eloquent in its brevity, was, quote, a confession is voluntary in law if and only if it was, in fact, voluntarily made. Good point. So it's, it's you know, it's a fascinating story just from the facts of it. It sounds like yeah, it's definitely. from a detective novel. Um, yeah. But I think what made it, what made it jump out to me and... And as I was sort of researching this segment was that it has carried on much further than just the flu pandemic. It's more than just a flu pandemic story. Um, so in in 1966, uh, in in the the ruling of Miranda v. Arizona, which um, you guys know and many listeners will know, was a landmark ruling on the rights of criminal defendants to be informed of their constitutional rights. It's where it's where the, the Miranda test comes from, the, the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney. Um, uh, when that ruling was issued in 1966, Chief Justice Earl Warren repeatedly cited Juan's, Juan's case, the Brandeis opinion in Juan's case, and quoted from it at length. So, you know, this case that 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 it, it brings us all the way back to 1919, and it was so rooted in... Um, in that that previous period of our of our nation's history, still lives on to today. I mean, there's all sorts of of ongoing problems with with you know what constitutes a coerced uh, confession and and other aspects of of um, you know you know that it still comes up. But but that that Miranda writes uh, uh, a speech that is read to a criminal defendant every time they're arrested. In, in a small way, traces back to, to this case and to the 1919 uh, flu. 
our show with something offbeat, and I don't want to put us in a, a pigeonholed place where we're doing the same thing week after week, but just last week we talked about a judge in Florida telling people to wear shirts to their video court hearings, uh, by people I mean attorneys to wear shirts, and now we have another Florida story. This week we're talking about a Florida attorney who took off his pants at a court security check. <laughs> you put uh, you put these two stories together. You got a naked attorney. That's just you that's, do. That's you true. Do. That's just. I, like, I also yeah. love that they're both in Florida. It just it feels right. Well, I mean, you you said you didn't want to pigeonhole us into just talking about attorneys in various states of undress during legal proceedings or adjacent to legal proceedings. But I mean, this is the this is the classic journalism quandary. It's like how many have to happen before we write a trend piece? That's right. right. You know, I mean, attorneys does, across this trend, great nation trend? are disrobing. Yeah. Do we just need one more? I think we um, might just need one more. And then yeah. and then and then it'll be a main segment. It'll it'll be it'll be elevated <laughs> from the offbeat. We'll have right. we'll have Strickler or, or, or somebody on to talk about it. It'll be great. Uh, well, but anyway, so the guy the wasn't backdrop. wearing pants. What happened? Yeah. So the backdrop here is that it's an Atlanta based attorney. His name's Robert M. Ward. He's fighting a bid right now to um, uh, another in a suit he's in. They want him disqualified as the attorney, the opposing party. So he is representing some lawyers who are suing a timeshare company. And Ward says that the Wyndham Vacation Ownership Group, which is this timeshare company, is trying to crush his career. Here's this quote about this. It is Wyndham's purpose to destroy lead counsel's legal practice (laughs) and thus serve a ruined attorney as an object lesson in Futuro to any younger attorney who would dare to oppose Wyndham's continuing unethical, unlawful, and fraudulent practices in the sale of their so-called timeshares. I love, I love that this, it's a Florida man story and it's just, we're checking the boxes. It's, it's about timeshares. Love that. It is. Um, so basically what they're arguing about at this point is that Wyndham says that the suits in Florida Ward doesn't live there. He has to have local counsel with him to proceed. He did have local counsel, but they've asked to withdraw. So they're like, well, he has to go too unless he gets somebody else. So as part of their argument about that, about having local counsel, um, (laughs) they pointed to an incident back in January where Ward, essentially got huffy with security guards at a Tampa federal courthouse and took off his pants. Just, um, um, uh, was he, he was making a political statement. He was, uh, <laughs> what, what it, go it on. would be so much better if he was making a political statement. It's far simpler than that. Reports say that in January Ward was asked by security guards at the courthouse at one of the normal checkpoints as you're coming in to take off his belt. This happens all the time at courthouses, at museums, at places that do security checks. It's pretty common to have to take off a belt because they have metal on them. Yeah. Um, there was some back and forth, and he eventually just took off his pants. Um, Ward, in a later filing before the court, admitted that he had disrobed in this way, but he said he was given express <laughs> you got me. permission. Hands up. He does the Walter White, you got me. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but he said he had expressed permission to do so by the officers after they refused to conduct the normal pat down. It's like Reggie, um, the security guard, told me pants. I can just take off my pants, right? Yeah. Right. We're doing, we're doing the no pants dance. Yeah. Um. 
this all came up as uh, a judge looking into this incident, as you would imagine they would. Uh, back in February, a judge didn't seem very happy, although Ward has continued to practice in the jurisdiction on a pro hoc vice basis. But the judge said, Ward's behavior demonstrated a lack of respect for the legal system and those who serve it. His behavior was discourteous, uncivil, and undignified. Above all, Ward failed to uphold the honor and dignity of the profession. <laughs> well, he failed to uphold something. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, I I want to say, I, I so I have to respect in some ways the sort of savvy litigation of the Wyndham team here because this is something that happened in January and they have now used it for like evidence to support a current motion. Like they yeah. could have seized on it at the time and they were like, I bet we can use this later on when we're trying to. I mean, I'm I'm being well, I'm having their heads like extemporaneously. When you're making a little an bit. argument that someone should no longer be a part of the case, that they should be DQ'd, it does seem relevant. I mean, he's obviously behaving in ways that even a judge just said, like, this isn't how the profession's supposed to work. Like, this is not a dignified way when to play attorney. Yeah. When I saw this headline uh, <laughs> on Law360.com. Uh, <laughs> I, I believed in my brain that he was wearing those warm-up pants uh, that that you can rip <laughs> off. Oh, the breakaway kind. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I He's thought maybe check he had scores table. Yeah. Right. They but were no, like, sir, because you wouldn't wear a belt with those. Run your bag through security one more time, and he was just like, "You made me do it," and just snapped them <laughs> off. Great, great. Yeah, I mean, I just. I've come away the last few weeks just having so much sympathy for the judges in Florida. They're dealing with a lot right now. They always are, but especially especially these days, I guess. Yeah, so um, I think we'll leave it there with that story. I hope next week we can move on from disrobing attorneys. Uh, no, but we'll see. no promises, though. Can't, exactly. Can, cannot promise that at this time. <laughs> Thanks for being with me for today's show, guys. Thanks a lot, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Jimmy Hoover, Craig Clough, and Mike Lasusa. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like our show, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. That's how other people find us. All of our coronavirus coverage that we've talked about is available outside of our paywall on our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.